Blog Talk Radio. Everyone, this is Anne Marie Lockhart, and you're listening to Vox Poetica's 15 Minutes of Poetry. I hope you all enjoyed what you just heard, which was our new um, musical intro, which was created for us by Suzanne Kapler. Thank you, Suzanne. Um, you're going to be hearing that in some of the promos that we do, and also at the beginning of each episode. So um, I wanted you all to hear it, and I hope you liked it. Today's guest is poet Anthony Roberts. Uh, Anthony, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Anthony, you have a new book coming out uh, very soon, set for official launch in February, but available via pre-order before, called Pigtown, and I would love if you would start us off with a poem from the book. Okay. Well, it was an easy place to remain, finish high school or not get a job or not, get married or not, have kids, a certainty. Split up, find someone else, have more kids. Surnames become clans and franchise polygamy without the vocabulary. Few ever dreamed. A trip to the ocean was an adventure. A trip to a suburban mall meant find preppy kids and fight them. No one went to a museum unless it was a field trip. The library, library, was only for school. Wine tastings were frequent. Mad Dog 2020, Thunderbird, Bartles and James, Boone's Farm. Bucolic becomes blue collar. Trapped. The number 11 bus was liberation, but always condemned to return. Until one day, I left. And now when I return, it's as if I was never there. Now, that is um, a poem from your book, Pigtown, and I, it feels to me like um, Baltimore is a character in this poem, and probably in the book itself. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Pigtown is the neighborhood where I grew up. It's in southwest Baltimore. Uh, if you've been to Camden Yards or driven down 295 on your way to D.C., you've driven through it. And... It absolutely is a character. It is the character. Um, It played a major role in shaping me and the path that I'm on. So this book, this long poem that the book centers around is autobiographical and probably also confessional and cathartic. Hmm. When, uh, this is your first book, right? Yes. So I, I, I love the way you just spoke about Baltimore being the central piece and the the story that, that you're telling in there being so personal and, and, um, so much kind of bigger and smaller all at the same time. How did you select the pieces that would tell this story in this way for, for you here? Hmm. The, the 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 pigtown itself is a multi-part poem and it's the the main part of the book and 
as far as selecting that, the the book, that poem really wrote itself. Um, it was almost like automatic writing. It was words that had just been in my head for, um, I don't know, for as long as I can remember, and then uh, started to come out after I returned from Afghanistan. So there was never any doubt that that long poem was going to be included. There are also some other pieces about Baltimore and about childhood that just seem to blend well with the long poem. It seemed to provide support to it, detail, and to flesh it out a bit, and, uh, particularly with imagery. So those those were the uh, those were the, those poems were selected to you know to uh, join Pigtown in the book to join the long poem. When um, when you were putting it all together, um, take shape. Did it did it feel like what you'd expected it to feel like? No, not at all. Um, when I first started writing it, as I said, it was not long after my deployment, I really had no training as a writer or as a poet. I just wrote. And then when I enrolled my MFA program and we took some time to workshop it, that changed the whole form and structure of the poem. It became less an attempt to make what I thought other people thought a poem was and to create a piece that's experimental in a lot of ways, but also more true to the emotions behind it. So it looks very different from uh, the way it did when it was yeah. born. Yeah. That uh, I think that's something writers could spend an inordinate amount of time going back over their original earlier work and reformatting it in different ways as you evolve in your writing um, craft. But I have a question for you. Tell our readers a little bit about all the things that you do and, and the journey from you know, soldier to teacher to writer, and where those paths intersect and how they, they appear as different elements in the work that you do, which is very distinctive. Um, it's, it's a kaleidoscopic existence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I, and that goes back to my childhood as well. Um, I snuck into the Maryland Science Center to see Da Vinci's Codex uh, when I was a kid mm. and was very overwhelmed by what I saw and understood that you know, this was this was genius on pages that were hundreds of years old. And then precocious or whatever term you'd like to use, I decided I was going to learn about Da Vinci, and I did, and got a hold of biographies, et cetera. Found I had a lot in common with him in terms of upbringing and, you know, not having a lot of advantages. So I decided I was going to be Da Vinci and uh, <laughs> wanted to be a – I decided I was going to be a polymath. It was the biggest word I knew as a kid. And so it was a conscious effort. And so now, yes, I teach writing at Fairleigh Dickinson University. I'm an adjunct in the college writing program. I am a professional soldier. I'm an Army officer. I've served both uh, active and in reserve statuses for the past 25 years. And I've always been a writer, even when I didn't realize it. Mm. Is there a tension that comes from these two completely different disciplines, maybe three completely different disciplines, actually, you know, when you're, when you're crafting something? Are there, are there forces that 
balance each other out, oppose each other at times? Um, how does that manifest itself in the work of producing? Um, there are tensions at times. Um, lately, obviously, over the past couple of years, the tensions have been primarily political. Um, mm. Based on my position as an Army officer publicly, I have no political opinion. And right. that's the way it has to be as we serve the Constitution, not an individual and not a party. So a lot of times poetry does become political. It has recently. It's become very political, and I haven't been able to engage that. And you know, when others have attempted to engage me with it, I've had to step back. So that's created some tension. Um, also, I mean, the, the other thing that we didn't mention is I'm also a father of four. And that creates its own tensions as well when, you know, yeah, I'd really like to sit down and write. I'd really like to work on this, edit it, or (laughs) do whatever. But instead, somebody needs a bath, somebody bit somebody, somebody pulled someone's hair. You know, (laughs) life life overtakes life. Yeah. This is the the eternal balance of a living writer. Um, Exactly. I would love to for you to read us something else and not not necessarily from the book at this point but something that kind of explores some of this other terrain here for you okay um this poem is uh well i'll give you a little background on it after the fact it's uh it's called captain ahad i sat with the captain a veteran of the soviet and afghan civil wars his forehead and crown, brown and lined, like a paper bag that had been folded, used, folded, used, refolded, and used again. His eyes, opal pits that had been reduced to slits by years of looking through a gun sight beneath the Afghan sun. Time is not measured by the sweep of the watch's hand, but it is cups of chai, and in two cups of chai we speak again. And I ask, Commandant Sayed, Jigturan, Abduljan, what will you do when the war is over? He smiles, shrugs, and says, wait for the next one. Tell us about it. I'm sorry? Tell us about this poem. That poem is... uh, a very close approximation to a discussion I had uh, with an Afghan army officer. Uh, My last deployment, I was embedded with the Afghan army as an advisor. So I lived and worked with this man every day for a year. And we, you know, we, we talked not just about military things, but family life. Mm. And, you know, this was a man who was around my age, maybe a couple of years older but his entire life had known nothing but war. And so trying to see what he saw on the horizon um, was a, it it was eye opening. It was definitely an awakening of sorts. Kind of funny that it happened as I was getting ready to leave, but Mm. is what it is. I I heard you read that at um, red dashboard, Elizabeth's uh, WAMP event which I was several months back and hearing it again, mm-hmm. I'm struck by the same quality in the poem, which is the pacing of it and the way it evokes a long timeline. 
And it does that um, with the sense of both a story arc and that broader picture that you just evoked, that, that sense of this, that's all this man has known, and that really comes, comes through in the poem itself. But it also, even in just the conversation, feels like time out of a day, of a life, you know, this, not, not even a moment, several long moments, you know, you're measuring time in cups of chai rather than in minutes. And so <clears throat> that, that is the concept of that experience for him is borne out in the, in the, uh, in the actual act of the conversation and the way that you render it in the poem. And I think that was surprising for me in listening to a, what might be characterized as a war poem, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you expect a more frenetic feel, a much quicker pace. And I, I liked the way you used the slowed um, idea of time in that to kind of almost, I don't know, it, it felt a little more tense even in that regard. And it gave us a different look at what the day-to-day feel of a deployment might be like for you. Um, mm-hmm. Was that intentional? Did it evolve as you wrote the poem or through the uh, editing process? It was. And the reason being is that um, there is, how do I want to put this? I, I'm definitely very influenced by war poets, particularly those of the First World War. Um, you know, McCray, T. E. Holm, Kilmer. And what people often don't realize is that there really isn't so much of the frenetic as much as there is the the slow tension, the quiet tension, the the waiting more than anything. And while it wasn't a conscious effort when I wrote the poem to create that it came about just because that's the way it was. And then when I went back and edited and looked at polishing the poem and making sure that I conveyed what I wanted to, you know, yeah, then I realized there, there is an effort, there is an attempt here to explain or express, you know, the concept of time, not just in a combat situation, not just in terms of, a war, but also in the dichotomy or the conflict between a Western versus a non-Western view of time. Mm. Yeah, and I think there is a, that's another piece to your poetry, and it, it goes both to the Baltimore element as well as the Afghanistan element. There's a, a translation, if you will, um, of one culture to another. Mm-hmm. There is, and that that's just, I grew up in a mixed culture home that was Greek-Irish and grew up, re- literally grew up in an Irish bar. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to cultures, plus my mother had lived um, in South America for several years. So the exposure to cultures and the immersion in them wasn't something that, was strange to me and it's something I enjoy and something I encourage my own kids to do. Mm. And sometimes even in, in cities, Baltimore is a definite city. It's, it's uh, something you have to work a little harder for because, you know, 
every place has its own provinces and provincialism is a is a cultural universality um I would even go further and say instead of provincialism, tribalism. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true, actually, yeah. Um, When when you read about Baltimore, you know, it doesn't – it sounds very similar to where I grew up, which was not a city, but but had a lot of similar elements in in culture. And I think for a lot of people, there's a familiarity – with certain elements of that experience and not others, but that gives them an um, opening to listen to your particular stories about that space and that time and what that was like for you. Mm-hmm. And maybe that can be said for, maybe that's the whole beauty of poetry really, right? And with one little entry point, you can expose somebody to a whole different world. Oh, um, absolutely. What, what are you working on beyond Pigtown? Um, you mean at present or? Yeah, what's the second book going to be? Oh, okay. I- I'm sorry. I just got distracted for a moment. I apologize. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I um, am now working on putting together some, some of the poetry from Afghanistan. Um, it's, some of it, that's taken longer to write than, I expected, but I guess it needed its own time to mature and for me to be able to apply hindsight to it a little more with a little less emotion. Um, And so there's that. And also there's a series of poems that are based on each one of the Greek muses. And I'm working with the same photographer, a blue Kebra, who did the work with Pigtown. Um, working with him to develop something similar in terms of intertextuality to build photos that will work with the muses as well. So those are the two things I have going on right now. Now, in terms of um, how how long can you do this, you know, professional soldier, professor kind of uh, double shift, if you will? Um. Right now, there's overlap as I start to make plans for the next part of my life. I'll be coming up on the end of my military career within the next few years, and we'll be looking at retirement. And obviously, I'm still relatively young and will (laughs) want to transition into a second career. And I'd love to teach. I'd love to be in, in that environment and to work with students developing their writing college writing or creative writing but so that's the plan eventually the teaching will eclipse the military and the uniform will be hung up and you know it'll be something my grandkids find in the closet one day (laughs) when you're um when you're in the classroom now uh how Mm -hmm. much of that military experience do you discuss with your students are they intrigued by it do they want to know more about that particularly um, it depends on the class and it depends on the student. Some students do, some don't. It's when it when discussing when discussing writing and engaging um each other's work and workshopping, I have used um my military experiences to explain aspects of okay, 
you're encountering someone right now to their writing whose background, whose thought processes, whose beliefs could be completely different from yours. And mm. you're, they're trying to express an idea to you in writing, and you're doing the same thing just as we did in Afghanistan when interacting with the Afghans and you have, you know, so there, there is the ability to draw some comparisons. Um, but really the main focus and the one thing my students have really been interested in more is what influences me as a writer and, you know, what should they do to better develop their writing? Yeah, that's, that's encouraging to hear the, um, how much of your work do you share with them in the classroom? Very little. Um, I, I don't want to be that professor who forces his students to buy his book. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, this is my first book. It's, it's poetry, but it may be poetry that no one ever reads. Meanwhile, there is poetry and there's literature that has withstood the test of time. So, I like introducing my students to the writers that influenced me um, yeah. and seeing seeing their experience with it and kind of living vicariously through it. Have you noticed any um, a trend or maybe, a, I don't know, something surprising or, or completely expected about the influences they bring into the classroom that have affected their own writing? Like, are you surprised by the the stuff they've been exposed to or I oh, oftentimes we hear about, you know, a lot of sadness about what they have not been exposed to, but what, what has been the surprising elements of where their influences have kind of come from? Um, well, the, 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 I guess a, a negative surprise has been how the, you know, text messaging and digital communication is degraded written communication. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, not surprising, but disappointing is that they're, they come in, how do I, how do I want to say this? They want to learn, you know, there's a desire to learn and to be exposed to things, but it seems what's happening with a lot of them when they're coming from high school is that there's just this, it's, it's almost assembly line. English education where, you know, the teachers for, you know, unfortunately they have so much time to teach so many students yeah. and the, the ability to really provoke thought and have those in-depth discussions and those, those moments where the student gets it um, seem to be declining and that's unfortunate. Uh, and I yeah. blame that on, I, I do blame that a lot on, Common Core and the education requirements that have been foisted upon the foisted upon teachers in the schools with no real understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, the ever ever evolving uh, circular battle of <laughs> education, the public sector, and the private too, because I think they're influenced the same way. There's no way to root it out of of one. It's all true. People will I mean, it, it would be great the, if we could forever. reopen the old academy. I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think people will be arguing this way and, and uh, for as long as we educate children, <laughs> which is a good thing, I guess, that we're still trying. 
<laughs> oh, if we bring back Latin in the classics, we'll be okay. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I'm not seeing it, but I would Oddly also applaud it. High too, Baltimore City College is a public high school that still requires Latin and philosophy to graduate. That's a beautiful thing. Helps it is. with everything. It is. <laughs> Truth. I, um, we're all out of time, so what I would like to do now is I would like for you to uh, read us one final poem from the book and give us a few final thoughts about that work, and then I'll provide everybody, we'll, we'll give them some details about where they can find you. Okay. Right. Nocturnal thoughts. Watching my children sleep, I write from a place of certainty where you haven't yet ventured. Youth, no matter how painfully lived, is expressed always in question marks or ellipses. I write from the tangled undergrowth of desolate middle age where the verdant woods of childhood are seen for what they are, the stand of scrub pine behind a vacant factory, every window broken, walls covered in graffiti, the overhead door rusted frozen, half open, forever defying gravity, unable to descend and find closure. I stand barefoot in a field behind the factory, feet bleeding from 10,000 shards that were once a stained glass window, the image of Mary holding the crucified Christ. I understand her tears better now. Imagine she's holding me, crucified by my own iniquities, each squandered heartbeat pushing blood through a body driven by a mind convinced of immortality. I watch the children from a distance playing among the trees, oblivious to me. I am too old to be noticed in the world the young create. I have no place here, so I cannot exist. There is no room for cynicism in a mind that makes redwoods of pines. I write from a place of certainty I pray you may never find. May you never learn why the aged seek solitude. It is not because I desire to be alone. I just don't want you to ever have anything in common with And, and that's that from the poem, book, right? That is from the book. That is from Pigtown. And, you know, it's, it was, uh, you know, just sometimes you stop and think about where you are, how you got here, and the mistakes you made along the way. And sometimes that leads to a book. Truth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, the book is called Pigtown. It's published by Red Dashboard Publications. It's by official release is February, but it is available in pre-sale. Anthony, tell us a little bit about how people can find it and you and your readings. Certainly. Um, you can find the book for pre-order through the Red, da- Red Dashboard website or um, myself and Blue Kever, the photographer, are offering a pre-order that includes both an inscribed copy and a uh, five by seven of the photo cover from of the cover photo from Pigtown, and that is available for twenty one ninety nine. And you can tell to Pigtown Books that is P I G T O W N B O O K at gmail dot com. Uh, local uh, locally, there will be several readings beginning in January throughout New Jersey. And then in February and March, we plan on being in New York and, of course, in Baltimore. 
and so just more info, asking, more info will follow there. For that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Have you have you read in Baltimore before? Or will this be the first time? This will be the first time. Excellent. So lots to look forward to. Indeed. Thank you again Thank for you. Uh, for having me on. Thank you for sharing with our listeners. Um, that was Anthony Roberts, everyone. The book is called Pigtown. I hope that you uh, find his work and enjoy it. I will be back again soon with another guest. And um, I want to thank you all for listening today. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.